You're listening to the Evolution Podcast, where we dive deep into the leadership practices and concepts that drive startups and other highly dynamic businesses. I'm Matt Oren, co-founder and managing director of Evolution, and an executive coach that guides leaders in fast-growing companies. Join me and my team as we speak with executives and other experts about modern methods to achieve long-term sustainable success. Hello, everybody. This is Matt Oren here, Managing Director of Evolution, talking to Janet Logathetti, Principal Managing Partner at Evolution, who provides executive coaching and leadership development to founders, C-suite, and senior leaders in the tech ecosystem. She has over 20 years of experience in coaching and mentoring others to lead from their core values. Specifically, her work focuses on building leadership and culture to sustain innovation, execution, and soul through rapid growth, public company readiness, acquisitions, and IPOs. She has worked with many household names in tech, including large search companies, companies that you find a place to reside online, as well as communications and social media. So Janet, welcome and good to have you. Thank you for having me. You are definitely have an interesting background and excited to explore that a little bit, especially as it relates to coaching folks. You know, maybe actually before we do that a little bit, when I talk about you, you really have insight into coaching a lot of fairly well-known people in well-known companies. And that kind of experience and pattern recognition, the kind of eye to power, I'm just curious, just talk about that a little bit. Like, what are some of the things, like, what's that been like for you to work with, you know, some iconic, these iconic leaders in Silicon Valley? Well, the first thing that arises when you ask that is common humanity. I have, we have the privilege of working pretty intimately with clients. And prior to being an executive coach, I was a psychotherapist and similarly had the privilege of being in quite intimate conversations with folks. And the confidence and whatever excellence that our culture kind of demands of our leaders, no matter who they are, you know, at, at heart, we all have share a common humanity, common vulnerabilities or uncertainties, different paths and journeys to accessing our own wisdom and, and power and influence. So that's the first thing that arises is just the common humanity of, of everyone I've ever met, whether they're executives or other kinds of clients or friends or or myself. So what's the first thing that arises? People are always just kind of curious. And again, we're not necessarily naming names, but people can jump to their own conclusions. Like what are some of the common issues that those folks face? I mean, one of the most common, and this is across all genders that I've encountered, is the imposter syndrome, this feeling of like, I don't really know what I'm doing, or this is the first time I'm in the C-suite. Um, so that's a really common one. And I, what I've come to observe is you're never really prepared for whatever's going to come your way. So nobody's feeling, at least that I've encountered, and obviously it's a self-select group of folks who do coaching, but I've never encountered anyone that's like, oh yeah, I've got this dialed in. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what the market's doing. I know what strategy's right. I know what to do with this particular team member. So um, that's definitely something I have observed. Do you think it's common? I mean, I don't think people you know, realize this, but like you, people look at people at the top of a big, well-known company that they have moments of like extreme disorientation and confusion, and they actually don't know what to do. 
what's that like to kind of support them in that? And like, how do you even begin to support them in that? Yeah, well, it's super common. So everyone should know that. And I think the way I support them and this, you know, you and I have talked in the past about how my Buddhist practice and studies influence how I work and how I work with clients. And Zen master Sung San, who's a relatively recent, he passed away some years ago, Korean Zen master has a term, there's many other terms for this, of the don't know mind, and how the don't know mind is actually the enlightened mind. It's the completely open mind, actually. It's the wisdom mind. So you can call it beginner's mind, whatever. And so there's some kind of cultural mental model that we have in our tech ecosystem, and perhaps a lot more largely in our culture of needing to know or thinking we should know. Whereas there's a lot of wisdom traditions where it's recognized that not knowing and relaxing into the not knowing is actually wisdom. It's not just like, it's okay. That's actually wisdom mind. When you're truly present and attending to the phenomena around you without the contraction that happens when you want to know something or feel like you need to know something. And usually that underlying that is a sort of sense of fear of some kind. Lo and behold, you have much more access to your various intelligences, creativity, to look at whatever situation you're in. So a lot of what I find myself doing with with clients who are in that kind of situation, or we're talking about that type of situation, is helping them just relax into and reframe and challenge that mental model or core belief that you're supposed to know. I mean, we might spend months on that. It sounds weird, but I'm thinking of a particular first-time C-suite executive who felt like they really needed to know a bunch of stuff that, you know, privately, they didn't feel like they knew. And so a lot of it was just normalizing, like, that's fine. And also, I think a related thing to that is, the more senior people get, the less they can know about everything that's going on, and the more they rely on their team and specialists in their team. So when you become a C-suite executive, or a high level of executive, your job is to look strategically and fly at a much higher altitude than when you were the person executing something, even as a director or senior director level, like your job changes. And that mental model shift to recognizing your job is different. You have to think much more broadly. You're not going to know everything that's going on. And you're not, you're going to have people on your team who are much better experts than you at a bunch of stuff. Like all of that to me is part of maturing into a uh, effective and happy senior executive. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I like how you connected that state that you can cultivate in the contemplative practices that would give you kind of that wide mind spaciousness to be able to assess, right? How the different parts are working together or what the future is. And just kind of what strikes me is that in some ways, what we're really kind of talking about is supporting them in a level of presence. And it's not just abstract presence. It's not like, hey, now you're going to feel better and you're going to feel more centered and grounded. It actually is in service of discretion and decision making and being judicious. And that actually comes from a lot of those practices and the support that we can give. Yeah, that's right. And the word presence or being present has now entered the much more popular lexicon. So there's much more understanding from many of us of how important it is to be present. We want to be present Mm -hmm. with our kids. That was a big thing I heard during the pandemic of people who are actually then working from home got to be literally more present, like actually physically present, but also 
had a little more spaciousness to learn how to, and in many cases, it was exactly that. It was learning how to be present with their kids at home or their partner at home or themselves for that matter. So there's this recognition now that learning to be present across all of the aspects of our lives is really important if we want to have a sense of meaning and purpose and, and kind of connection to ourselves and our lives. And one thing that I think about a lot in working in this particular tech ecosystem that's VC backed and it's you know pretty intense, you know this too, because you work in it as well. What the way I think about this, and I often will share this with my clients, and it, it tends to resonate with them, is one of the reasons I like to work in this arena is because it's so intense. The money, the power, the hopes and fears, all of that is like this concentrated intensity that everyone feels, the FOMO, like the whole thing. And what that does or can do, if you approach it as such, is it can become like your professional life in this type of ecosystem can become like an alchemical vessel for your soul to grow. And it's sort of like the way steel gets stronger, you know, it gets tempered in fire, and then it becomes stronger. And of course, this isn't true for, for everybody. It's like you have to kind of wake up to the opportunity in front of you to take this type of tech ecosystem or founder, if you're, especially if you're a founder and going on this founder's journey, it really can be a very profound, spiritual, personal journey of awakening, of recognizing hopes and fears, of learning how to be present, learning how to stay regulated as opposed to dysregulated and kind of freaking out about stuff. Um, and because it's such an intense environment, the, the growth possibilities are equally as intense. And that's something I've thought about a lot over the last 14 years. I kind of have an unwritten book in my head called The Founder's Journey which I have not written, but it's in my head about exactly this, like how founding a company, and that can be not just the person or persons who founded the company, but really the kind of founding team. Those folks who are in there from like zero to 300 employees, that sort of stage series, you know, from angel to series, maybe B or C, something like that. Like that period of time is nuts and it continues being nuts for, for quite some time. And that's the opportunity. Um, it can be a great opportunity. Wow. Well, there's a lot in what you said and really well articulated. And just what strikes me is it is a pressure cooker and it's very intense and very visible in some ways, an artificial one that can create kind of heat for transformation. And it's also like the leaders go through these levels, right? Rapid levels of having to like completely change out their operating system. And I think this is one of the cases for coaching and why it's deployed so much in startups. But you know what you're talking about, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this too, and then kind of weave back in to some of the other questions is some I'd like to hear a little bit about your kind of Buddhist history and some of your experiences with that, because it seems like in opposition to the immediate move fast, uh, be intense, right? It's like Buddhism is like the opposite of all that, right? And so uh, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, maybe we talked a little bit about it, maybe talk, share a little bit about your story and about how you think it intersects, like Buddhism intersects with coaching people specifically. Yeah. So one thing is it's completely not opposite to that move fast, break things, or just generally being agile, pivoting quickly, handling multiple inputs at the same time, all the complexity, move, move, move. On the outside, if you're observing someone practicing meditation, it looks like the opposite of that. But I would argue that it, the presence of mind cultivated through deep practices enables 
that kind of agility, the cognitive agility, the awareness agility, the uh, fearlessness it takes to make rapid decisions and pivot immediately. And one of my favorite images is of Bruce Lee in, in Enter the Dragon fighting off whatever, 12 different people attacking him. And he is able to move in an extremely volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous situation with incredible mastery. And anyone who knows anything about real martial arts knows that there's as much a mind component as a body training. And so to me, the reason that he, and this can be both um, figurative and literal, the reason he or a master martial artist can do that is because the presence of mind is so efficient at shifting attention when necessary, rapidly, wisely, with discernment, quickly. And that's not what most people think about, about meditation, you know, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about med meditation. I feel incredibly fortunate that I was introduced to meditation in the Tibetan tradition, in the lineage of Chogyam Trungpa, who founded Naropa University, where I went to graduate school. Because from, the, from my first introduction or any kind of formal introduction to meditation training, that was very clear. Yes, there is the aspects of self-compassion and loving kindness. Absolutely. And that's foundational for sure. But it's way more than that. And the Tibetan tradition I've found, which is what I've been practicing in really for the last 20 plus years, has just an incredibly broad understandings and insights about the nature of mind and how one can cultivate one's mind to just be really useful. So one of the things I share a lot with clients, and even if they have no interest in or you know never been interested or even exposed to meditation, let alone the, the Tibetan stuff, is I will bring up the iconography, just the artwork of the Tibetan tradition. And you'll see these figures who are bodhisattvas, like awakened beings or dakinis, who are these wisdom energies. And there'll be one character that's like a female character who's red and has fangs and is holding a skull cup of blood and stomping on a corpse. And it's just really wrathful and intense. And then you'll have another one like White Tara, who looks a lot like Mother Mary, who's very peaceful, soft, gentle eyes, and just has this loving presence. And when one cultivates one's mind and recognizes the various, the expansive nature of mind, there's no contradiction. And you can manifest in whatever form is useful. So tying this to leadership, for example, sometimes the wisest thing you can do as a leader is show up with some wrath, but compassionate wrath, wakeful wrath, um, loving kindness wrath. And people can mess that up. So please don't misinterpret me. Like it takes mastery to manifest wrathfully, skillfully. But sometimes the right thing as a leader is to present in a different form, perhaps more compassionate. There's a character in the Tibetan, um, I don't know if it's pantheon, that's probably not the right word, but who is known, Manjushri, who's known as uh, the wisdom bodhisattva, and he carries a sword because he can slice through things with insight. So there's multiple ways to manifest wisdom and intelligence. And that's been a huge aspect of how Buddhism has affected me and how, I, how it influences how I work with leaders of cultivating that presence of mind, discernment of mind, and the freedom and openness to manifest as needed in multiple forms. I love that. Really, really well said. And I do think it is a common misconception, which is one of the reasons why I kind of asked that question. There's another, there's a form of leadership called situational leadership, right? Which is an extension of that in the behavioral science, which is like, what 
stance are you adopting in what place? But the engine of that and how to do that takes a lot of mastery and self-discipline and awareness and embodiment, right? Yeah, fascinating. And you actually had an experience of a few years back actually going over to Nepal, right? And teaching. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about that? Yeah, that was wild how that arose. I mean, I certainly wasn't seeking it. um, But I met a woman who's become a friend. And she lives in Nepal and has lived there many, uh, many years. She went over as a young woman, met a teacher and stayed there and is a very devout practicing Buddhist there. And she got involved in an organization called the Kansai Foundation, which one of their programs was this idea that the monastic traditions of Tibet are really, really old. And the wisdom is absolutely, as we were kind of just talking about, there's so much wisdom in this thousand or two thousand year old tradition that we are just beginning to learn in the West uh, in the last you know, several decades. Um, but the management, if you will, of the monasteries is perhaps due for an upgrade. It's very hierarchical. It's very patriarchal. And consequently, it's not very nimble or agile or necessarily able to meet the world that we find ourselves in today. And so this organization had the wisdom and insight to, to think, what can we learn from business and leadership principles and practices that can help? bring these monastic wisdom traditions into the 21st century in a way that will allow those teachings to to add value, to use ridiculous consultant speak, um, to, to the world in a way that the world can relate to. I met this woman and we initially connected just about Buddhism. And then, of course, we started talking about our professions. And then she said, I'm on this faculty to teach a couple of monastic leaders, which this is just nuts. Of all the Tibetan teachers alive today, these were the two, their brothers, that I most resonate with, haven't met either of them, haven't gone on retreat with either of them. I've just read some of their work, Mingyur Rinpoche and Sokni Rinpoche. And it turns out that the session she was asking me to join the faculty was these two very highly regarded uh, Tibetan teachers around the world and their most senior leaders in all of their monasteries and nunneries. So I found myself in this incredibly hard-to-fathom situation where I was the teacher and they were the student. But of course, there was a lot of wisdom transmission from them to me simply being in that setting and in that environment. So, But it was, it was a really profound and wonderful exchange, I felt, that there were things that I've learned in our setting and our ecosystem that are useful to them and obviously should go out without saying or should be obvious that I perceive incredible value from the teachings that of, of wisdom, which, you know, situational leadership, whatever, that got copyrighted, perhaps. But that wisdom has been around for thousands of years. Yeah. Wow. That is quite a story. And you know, we say that a lot kind of around evolution too. I think it's one of the reasons why we're fairly agnostic and we're uh, have a kind of an open source mentality to content because it all you know whether it's the last 50 years of behavioral science or the last 3,000 years of spiritual traditions is the same narrative just changing form and you know sometimes there's just this vanity that happens with people in that uh you know maybe that's too strong of a word and they attach to a certain concept or whatever and and you know the other thing that kind of strikes me about you know your experience there is bringing leadership and management development to a group of monks, right, who then are inputting their 
you know, levels of, of spiritual awareness and mastery in that. And there's like a system there in organization building that even, you know, Tibetan monks need that we do. Absolutely. I mean, one of the most, I don't even know what word to put to it, kind of funny or interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. when we do leadership work, there's some very basic skills that leaders need, like active listening and Mm -hmm. reflection. And we had them doing these exercises and they'd never done that before. And certainly in the hierarchy, like to have a young nun um, talk and have a very senior person sit and listen is not a thing for them. So it was just fascinating to see how some very basic leadership principles here are relatively new to that, um, mm-hmm. that culture, that leadership culture. Wow. The other kind of interesting thing about you, I'm curious how this kind of intersects, and then maybe you know, we'll talk about what you think is needed today in terms of leaders and leadership, a trauma therapist. And you know, you've done work with uh, you know, different things, sensory motor regulation, uh, neuroscience, different trauma therapies, etc. So how does that show up in your coaching and what's there in terms of, you know, uh, what would be interesting for people to know about how that intersects with, with coaching uh, leaders as well? Yeah, I found that background and training to be remarkably and somewhat surprisingly useful in leadership coaching and executive coaching. But upon reflection, of course, it's useful. So in short, maybe I can just say a bit about what it means to be a trauma therapist. So, you know, trauma is a word that we can kind of throw, throw around. Um, but there is, there is, there are experiences that are clinically trauma or PTSD is a clinical diagnosis. And so I really want to honor that there's different types of trauma. Um, but one thing that kind of defines trauma is sensory motor dysregulation. So what does that mean? That means heart rate is up, muscles are tense. There's sometimes a shutting down of consciousness. I mean, trauma, one way you can think of it is responding in the moment as if the traumatic thing is happening when it's not. It's like the nervous system just kind of gets flooded. And a few things can happen when when people get dysregulated is they can go into hyperarousal, like super aroused, and then it's like heart rates up, muscles. It can be a lot of emoting. Um, there's also hypoarousal where people really shut down and you know the extreme form of that is really being dissociated and frozen. And interestingly, I have a 10-year-old son and I'm happy to see that in his school now, they have these little handouts that are red zone, green zone, blue zone or whatever, where they're helping the kids see what zone of regulation are you in. And what we want to do is stay in that kind of mid zone where sure, we can kind of be more activated or less, but we're sort of in a zone. And so when you work with trauma, you're working with helping people stay in that regulated zone and not get hyper or hypo aroused. And, you know, anyone who's worked in business knows, or anyone who's a human really has been in situations where just, you know, people are really upset or someone's kind of freaking out or acting really inappropriately by yelling at someone, for example, or less perhaps visible or dramatic, someone's really shutting down and no longer present um, in the meeting, for example. And so a lot of what I find myself doing in my one-on-one coaching sessions is helping people, number one, recognize that they have a body and that the body actually has sensations and then attuning to what those are and recognizing, oh, I'm noticing my breathing is 
really shallow or my stomach is really tight or my hands are sweating or, you know, whatever the, the various somatic, you know, body centered and related activation is occurring. And then to recognize that, oh, I must, something's going on here. And then to learn practices and skills, there's breathing, um, there's grounding exercises, et cetera. There's also cognitive kind of behavioral work we can do around belief systems or thoughts that are helping to create that, that state. And so I find myself, yeah, a lot working with people to help them stay in that state. And again, this kind of goes back to something we were talking about before of really being truly present. Mm -hmm. And in the regulated present state, that's when you have access to all of your intelligences. That's when you're most able to, to take in all the data that you need to, to recognize for your situation, and then to make clear decisions and communication of what you should do. So that state is really important for leaders. Leaders do not make good, good, nobody makes good decisions when they're highly activated. Yeah, it seems like it really does intersect with contemplative practices, right? And there's a lot of, uh, in terms of like how you actually work with that, a lot of the practices around breathing and embodiment and slowing the nervous system and unwinding the nervous system allow for really kind of that wise mind, that kind of sovereign discretion. And, um, you know, maybe what we're talking about, there's like some modern kind of approaches and scientific awarenesses of, of practices that are essentially ancient, right, that are just changing form in this as well. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's really quite interesting. And I think non, you know, it's, it's a, it's the other thing that kind of strikes me is it's non-traditional in the sense that, you know, the work that we do isn't really like performance coaching, like set a goal and go after that goal and accountability, accountability, accountability. And it's not that I think we don't do accountability or we don't support people with goals, but I think at a certain level, people are very self-motivated and they know what they have to do. And actually the reverse is true where we need them to like go into themselves actually versus projecting into the future and find that sense of wisdom and find that sense of purpose and values and then make their decisions and lead from that place. Right. So that inner journey, uh, really is, it sounds like that's what you're talking about when you talk about the founder's journey and how it's a pressure cooker for, for personal and spiritual development. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think about, I I've said maybe variations on this a few times, just in this conversation of having, having everything online, like ideally as a leader, you've got everything online. You're thinking clearly, you're, you're able to, process a lot of different kinds of information. One of the things that happens when we get dysregula dysregulated is that literally parts of our minds shut down. Like we, we sometimes it's said, and this is, this is really a visual thing where people will get literally tunnel vision. I'm not speaking figuratively, mm -hmm. like if they're in a traumatized mm -hmm. or activated state, they literally can't see. And so one of the interventions one might do as a therapist will say, just look around, like literally move your neck. And similarly, um, cognitively, even if it's not trauma, but it's just kind of that the similar type of activation, your mind shuts down. You can't take in all the information that's available and your reasoning and your logic and your emotional intelligence can really go down. So um, it just really makes sense to me that what, well, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we want all of us online and so that we have mm -hmm. access to all of our different types of intelligence. We have access to all the, the data to be able to lead and guide whatever endeavor we're doing. Yep. Why wouldn't we do that? Right. 
Yep. That's very, very well said and wise, you know, and, and so I'm just kind of curious when you look at the current landscape of the state of the world, the state of venture capital and the startup ecosystem and tech that we work in, all of the, the people that you support, like what is the, what is the work for leaders today and how might it be different than it was before? And can you just tell me a little bit of yeah, what you see there? Well, that's a really big question, given the context of the world that we're in right now, which is not totally different than the world we've ever been in before. But somehow, I think for many of us, it all feels bigger. Climate, uh, there's existential threats to civilization, arguably, climate Mm -hmm. being one of them, but also sense making and democracy and uh, and a pandemic for that matter. Um, And so I think what I've really been reflecting on a lot is humans' ability to collaborate and communicate and solve problems for us, for for all of us. And there's really basic things that have to happen there, which is we need to be able to make sense together, like make sense of things. And we need to then be able to share ideas about what to do about that sense we just made. And then we need to be able to coordinate and ideate some kind of solution or experiment or something and then we need to execute that. So the, so when I think about leadership today, really anytime, but it somehow feels heightened for most people I talk to these days. Like this is a really we're getting into kind of existential territory for ourselves as a species. So it really would behoove all of us and especially people who are in leadership roles and have influence over resources or people that we cultivate that presence of mind to be able to communicate with each other, to make sense of things, first of all. And right now, we, we don't see a lot of that. We see a, you know, a lot of just complete gap between what reality even is. So that has to be closed somehow. And you know, the way that I know how to do that is to regulate our systems. Like when people are dysregulated, they can't hear, they can't listen. They can't speak in ways that other people can listen. It's just like, you know, kind of yelling at each other. So I can't, over, I can't emphasize enough the, the importance of that presence of mind, self-regulation, making sense, and then using those very same tools or states of being to then, okay, here are the various challenges we're facing. What are things we can do? I mean, we're a creative species and our ability to create stories that, that align us in in ways that are supportive of meaning and happiness and and life, we have those capacities as human beings, and I refuse to give up on us. Shogam Trungpa once said, that's one of the forms of laziness is cynicism and despair. Don't be lazy. So I really take that to heart. Um, So I think, yeah, that ability to cultivate that presence and wisdom so that we can make sense with each other, see what is happening, see what is needed, ideate, coordinate, and then make those things happen and then learn like that cycle. Right. Yeah. We talk, you know, you and I talk about that's one of Yuval Ferrari's points, right? About mm-hmm. how to deal with the issues of the 21st century is to cultivate that. And what the, the implication of what you're saying is there is such a bombardment of inputs that people have and the rate of change is so rapid and the social norms that include business itself are changing so rapidly, it is dysregulating profoundly for people. And 
the work of the leaders is to lead, right? Is to add some value back into society and navigate these waters. And how best to do that other than being able to kind of cultivate that within that provides a compass so you can, you know, make decisions and knife through all the noise. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering, is there anything else, you know, just kind of on your mind around the role of leadership in terms of I asked most people this in being more stakeholder centric and what role business might have, you know, given what we just said in today's world? And, you know, and does leadership have a different, is there a different ethical implication for leaders in today's world than there was before? Yeah, I think about that a lot. I mean, let's, let's comment on stakeholders. You know, usually, traditionally, stakeholders is a relatively small group of people. It's, you know, employees, customers, investors, some, something like that. And of course, in more recent years, there's recognition that, oh, maybe we should include other stakeholders like society or the environment. And I think it's really important that leaders expand, humans, frankly, all of us, expand our notion of who is, who is me and mine? And rather than that being really narrowly defined of like, oh, well, it's my company, my employees, my customers, and my investors, for example, it's like, oh, it's all those and it's the communities in which my company exists. And oh, it's also the people who are involved in the supply chain. And oh, it's actually also the oceans that carry the stuff from the place to the place I need it to manufacture. And oh, like so that our our concept of of this is going to sound esoteric, but I think it really is quite grounded. Our our concept of who we are expands as wide as possible. Uh, and that stakeholders is really the entire planet in all of its ecosystems and all of the creatures. And when we have that kind of awareness, like, oh, all of that is interconnected and matters, I think we'll be in much better shape. And so I think it really is because there are existential risks, potentially, I think, to all of us uh, previously mentioned that that shift in mindset of who are my stakeholders or who are the stakeholders? How about if everyone is all the stakeholders? And, and that includes also the earth itself, all of that. So for me, that feels really important. And that is a shift in consciousness of widening my sense of me and what's mine and who matters and what matters. It's like everything matters. And that doesn't mean we just kind of get lost in the clouds. We absolutely can create amazing experiences and artifacts um, from that awareness. Yep. It fundamentally is the journey from egocentric, me making a thing or making money to world centric, which is all of us doing this thing on this planet. And I think that the, the hope in that is that business has such a leverage point and you know we talk about business being an evolutionary force and evolutionary business it's like there's a leverage point that people in power have to enact that change and i think you know listening to our talk today that really starts from kind of within as you're saying to kind of quiet yourself and understand who you are and how you're collaborating with other people and and what you want to do in this world and what true value you want to add and it's like that is that's the wave that will lead us you know to make it to the next ring well, I really appreciate it, Janet. Fascinating and lovely to connect, my friend, and really appreciate all of your wisdom here and look forward to the next one of these. And thanks to everybody for listening and we will see you down the line.